0: All right, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. We're working our way through this uh, series on the book of Hebrews. And the theme has always been, Jesus is greater than. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is, remember, it's written to Jewish believers, Jews who've become Christians. They've entered some really difficult times, and because of that, they're kind of uh, going back (coughs) to old habits, they're reverting to things that they had left behind when they became a Christian. Have you ever done that? When you're tired, are you more likely to sin? When, you're, when things are difficult, are you more likely to fall back into old habits and old patterns? I think we, we all are like that. I, I'm a basketball coach. Did you guys know that? <laughs> uh, have I ever talked about that? Um, what's funny to me is, is when you shoot a layup, which is just laying the ball up, if you're on the right side of the hoop, you're supposed to shoot it with your right hand, If you're on the left side of the hoop, you shoot it with your left hand, and most people are right-handed, so they struggle shooting it with their left hand. Well, you practice and practice and practice, and I can get all the girls on my team shooting with their left hand in practice, but guess what happens in a game when the pressure's on? They revert back to their right hand because that's what they're comfortable with, and we do the same thing. When pressure's on, when, when times are difficult, we kind of fall back into what we know and are comfortable with instead of embracing the new things that we've learned. So the writer is, is reminding them over and over, guys, in this middle of this difficulty, as you want to turn back to these things that have, have been a part of your Jewish practice, you need to remember that Jesus is greater than all these things. Jake has talked over the last couple of weeks about the danger of falling back into this dependence on dead works. And, and, and instead of trusting in what God has done on our behalf. And last week he showed how Jesus was a better priest than he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Did you remember that? That was a great, great sermon. But our text today picks up by stating once, once again why this priest is better. Once again, Jesus is greater. He's been greater than angels. He's been greater than Moses. He's been greater than priests. And in our text today, he's going to be greater than the whole Jewish sacrificial system. The thing that the Jews saw as this key for their relationship and forgiveness from God. Now, it's a long text I'm going to do 8, 9, and 10, so I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to kind of skip through 8 and 9, and we'll focus a little more on 10 as we go. Um, but first of all, in, in chapter 8 and 9, the reason that Jesus is a better priest, the writer says, is that he brings a better covenant. Now, what's a covenant? We don't talk about that term very much. It's an agreement between two parties. It's, it's, a, it's a structure about the way things are going to work with each other. And so, in in chapter 8 of Hebrews, look at verse 6. I'm going to read down to verse 13. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the old priests, as the covenant of which He is a mediator is superior to the old one and is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, that first agreement between God and human beings... No, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds." And write them on their hearts, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. He says this new covenant that Jesus is bringing, this new agreement between God and and humanity is is better because it's established in verse 6, he says, on better promises. And all this has been coming, he says, because the old covenant was limited. It it wasn't working. The people could not measure up to to the agreement that was made there. And and they had these systems in the old covenant. And that's what the first part of chapter 9 is. In verses 1 to 10, it talks about the the regulations for worship and, and what they did in the tabernacle and the temple and how they could approach the presence of God, there were all these stipulations in the Old Covenant. And why did, they, why did they have all these regulations, and why did they have all these things in the Old Covenant? If you look in chapter 9, down at verse 8, it says, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. Now stop there for a minute. What happened was, for people to approach God... In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, they would have to, to come into the temple, they would bring their sacrifice, and the priests would work their way in. And once, one day a year, they could go actually into the presence of God, the most holy place, and offer atonement for the sins of the people. And only the high priest could go. So what he's saying here is that showed that it still wasn't good enough already. Even the covenant when it was given, it wasn't enough. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered at that time were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. Since the old covenant had its place, God did all that to help them understand. But this priest is a better priest because he brings a better covenant. There's a new way that God is going to relate to humanity. And, and in 9 11 to 28, he literally fleshes that out. Okay? I'm using that as a pun because he's saying Jesus is a better priest because he becomes a better sacrifice. You know, in the sacrificial system, they would bring an animal and they would, the animal would die, the blood would be shed as a way of paying for the sin of the person who brought the sacrifice. And what he says. In chapter 9, look at verse 11 and 12. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the means of of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus became this once-for-all sacrifice in this new covenant, that really provided forgiveness. The others had been hinting at forgiveness, but they never really actually forgave the people. And Jesus now, is he's a better priest because he's got a better covenant, because he becomes a better sacrifice. And then as, as the text moves into chapter 10, we see he's the better priest because he is the reality behind the shadows. Jake talked a little bit about that in the past couple of weeks, that all these things in the Jewish faith were shadows of a reality that was to come. If you look at the first verse of chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Back in chapter eight, I didn't read it, but it says that, that they serve at a sanctuary that's a copy and a shadow of the one that's in heaven. So Jesus is this better priest because number, number one, he brings a better covenant. Number two, he is the better sacrifice. And number three, he is the reality that all of these things were pointing toward. And, you know, the issue for the people that, that he's writing to is that times are difficult. They're, they're struggling. It's not, life has not been what they thought it would be. How many of you, after you became a Christian, thought life would just be smooth? And it's not been the way it is. And, and it's supposed to be. The way we thought it was just going to all work out. And they're feeling that. And so they're reverting back to some of these old practices. They're, they're trying to, to see if maybe I'm doing this thing wrong but the writer saying those things are only shadows jesus is better than all this and if you begin to understand that this better priest brings a better covenant by offering himself if you get this and i don't want to under i, I want you to, if you understand what is happening this changes everything forever and i i know everything forever sounds like really really big but it is really really big Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, once for all, we're forgiven. There is nothing left to do for us in regards to our sin. All the payment for every sin we have ever committed and every sin we ever will commit has been paid on the cross. And because of that, we're not only free to live in a relationship with God, but we're transformed as we live in that relationship. Now, Let me just read chapter 10, 1 to 18. And this is where we're going to hone in a little more closely. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And for this reason, it can never, by the sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices, the ones they used to do, are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. And then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will O oh God. First he said, sacrifices and and offering, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. And then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, day after day, he says, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for one time, for all time, one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, Their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. For where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Now, there's a lot in that section. I'm going to focus on maybe 10 to 14 more than any other part but especially on a phrase that we say, but I think we don't really often believe it. And that is that we are forgiven once and for all. We are forgiven once and for all. 10, verse 10, and by that will we have been made holy. Past tense, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that God was... You don't have to raise your hand. (laughs) Have you ever felt that God was punishing you for your behavior, for your sin? Have you ever felt like that? God's punishing me for that. Well, let me tell you this. That's that's heretical, according to what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, I'm not saying sin doesn't have consequences. If you go out and beat somebody up and hurt somebody, you may have to pay the consequences of that action. If you... you, uh, have an affair outside of your marriage, there's going to be consequences for that, that you're going to reap. But what this scripture is saying is that there is no punishment for that sin. That punishment for that sin took place on the cross once for all. That's why in Romans 8, 1, it says there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why don't you read that with me? Let's just read it together. One, two, three. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, just let me ask you a few questions. When is there no condemnation? There is now, therefore, no condemnation. And how much condemnation? None. There is no guilt for, those, for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches so when you in your head think God is punishing me for my sin, that's that's not a correct interpretation of the teaching of the gospel. Your sin has been paid for once for all by what Jesus has done on the cross. That's why it says in verse 18 of chapter 10, and where there ha- where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. We don't have to pay the price for our sins. And, and we have been restored into a relationship. Let's look at verses 19 to 23 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Think about a relationship where there's been, maybe you've had one of these relationships where there's a brokenness. There's been somebody's hurt, somebody's feelings and it's awkward. And sometimes those are short. You you know you get in an argument with somebody and the next time you see them, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Sometimes those go on for years. I heard a story this week about two sisters who hadn't spoken for 20 years and finally came back together. In those situations of brokenness, when they finally get together, how many of you think that's an awkward moment? Raise your hand. Is that an awkward moment? You've been, have you felt those? And what... What the writer of Hebrews says is, because once for all the sacrifice has been made, when you and Jesus, when you and the Father reconnect, you can approach the throne with confidence. Boldly approach the throne of grace, knowing that you're forgiven. There's no awkward. You don't have to be afraid. You, you, can, you can have your heart forgiven and and in full assurance and confidence that he who promises faithful to do what he said and you can enter into a relationship with God without having to keep your eyes down. Since we have that confidence, since we have this great high priest, since sin has been forgiven, once for all we have confidence to enter the holy place. And the, the, the writer is saying the Jewish practices they were reverting back to always have that barrier. They always say, you need to sacrifice this, you need to go through this ritual because you've got to make yourself right before God. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, it's done. And what do we hold on to? Not to the works we do for God. You know, that's what we do. We think, yeah, I can boldly approach God because look at all these things I've done. But in verse 23 it says, what we hold on to with confidence is the hope that we profess that it's true, that God is faithful to do what He says, even when we aren't faithful to Him. And now you say to me, Jeff, this, I, I like what you're saying, kind of, but it makes me a little nervous because if really there is no more punishment for sin, won't people just play with God and not actually be obedient? It's a good question, right? If, if, because, I mean, let's be honest, when we train our kids up, we use fear of punishment to motivate them to do different things. And we think if there's no fear of punishment, then are we really going to obey God? Are people, aren't they just going to take advantage of that? And I think we can learn something from the way we treat our kids. Fear of punishment can modify behavior, but does it actually change the heart of an individual? Fear and punishment can conform the outside but it doesn't change the inside. And that's why he says in this new covenant, I'm going to write my law on their hearts. I'm going to change the inside. And so what, what we worry about is, is if we really say that there's no more punishment for sin, once you come to Jesus, you're forgiven completely. And we think, oh, that's just too, it's too much. People take advantage of that. The writer in Hebrews doesn't seem too concerned about that. In fact, he says that this, this freedom to approach God Actually, it's because we're transformed to live differently. Look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 10. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, and let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. That, that let us spur one another on to love and good deeds, that word spur is actually irritate. The Greek word is like, like a cattle prod. And I love that because I work with the church, and I know you guys irritate each other toward love and good deeds all the time. In fact, when somebody's irritating you, guess what? They may be irritating you toward being forgiving to them. You may have to just say, oh, you're driving me crazy, but you're, you're, you're spurring me on to love and good deeds. I love that. Uh, the heart of the message of the whole book, though, is this. That forgiveness that, that Jesus has done once for all begins to change us begins to make us different. You know, things have gotten hard for these believers. They're starting to think that maybe we need to try something different. This doesn't seem to be working the way I thought it would work. They need to go back to what they were depending on before. But Hebrews says you've been forgiven once and for all. And as you learn to rest in that, you will be transformed to live differently. All fine and good, but then comes the scary part. Verse 26. Verse 26. And who has insulted the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wait a second, that's a huge gear shift. Boldly approach the throne of confidence with grace. There's, all sin is paid for, it's all, punishment's over. The punishment took place on the cross. But then comes this scary part. What's it, what's it saying there? There's this warning about wrath, the wrath of God, this God who will punish sin. The tough six verses, we've just been told sacrifice is enough, but then it says if we deliberately keep on sinning, there's no sacrifice for sins left. What does that mean? If it was so good in 19 to 25, why is it so hard in 26 to 31? Now, I'm stealing a lot from Jake. You've got to remember the context of the book. You've got to remember the big picture of what Hebrews is saying. You remember that all through these, Jesus is better than every single one has a warning. Jesus is better than this, and there's a warning. Jesus is better than this, and there's a warning. In the beginning, it was, it was Jesus is better than the angels. Remember, because the angels it was thought that they gave the law. And it says Jesus is better than that, but the warning was, don't fall away. Pay closer attention to what you've heard. If the law was important, how much more, if what God said through the law was important, how much more so what God says through Jesus, because he's greater. That was the first warning. And then in chapter 3 and 4, Jesus was greater than Moses. And the warning was, if, you reject, if they rejected Moses' leadership and they didn't get rest, how bad will it be if you reject the leadership of Jesus, who's the only one who can give you rest? In chapters 5 to 7, Jesus was a greater priest, this one from the line of Melchizedek, and they warned against rejecting Jesus because he was our best hope of renewing a relationship with God, right? If, 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 if people struggle with the old covenant and they, they don't accept Jesus, what a, that's a warning there. See, the whole context through the whole book has been that Jesus is greater than these things, so you better make sure that what you're depending on is Jesus. And I think you have to understand that to understand the phrase in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth. No sacrifice for sins is left. Because I think when we hear that phrase, if we deliberately keep on sinning, we think about automatically breaking the commands of God. And that is sinning. But I think what he's talking about here is if we deliberately keep on depending on what we do instead of what Jesus does, then there's no hope for you. If you're going to depend on your own actions instead of receiving the grace of Jesus... There's no sacrifice that, that can pay for that. He says in verse 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses would, would die. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? See, he's talking about people that have been sanctified by God, who've been covered by this blood and refused to accept that, who who fall back into this pattern of, I'm going to carry it myself, I'm going to do the best I can. See, what what he's writing about here, and what I think we often confuse is the relationship between wrath and grace. We think that wrath drives us to grace, and it does at times. Or we think that if we push grace too far and take advantage of it, we'll receive wrath. But I think what he's saying is, If we don't live fully by the grace of God every single second, we're choosing wrath. We have a choice to choose to carry our own sins or to let Jesus carry them. Let me give you an example. You may find yourself in this example, but I'm not talking about you specifically because it's a generic person. Imagine a person who commits to follow Jesus, and they're thankful for his forgiveness. It impacts them very deeply. They're moved. They can't believe God loves them. But as life goes on, they also struggle with changing certain aspects of their life. They're making the same mistakes over and over again. And at times, they become very frustrated because it just seems like this Jesus thing isn't working. They start feeling overwhelmed with their own failure. They begin to question, did I ever really believe in the first place? Am I doing this thing right? They love Jesus, but the thought comes that maybe he's disappointed in the way in what they're doing. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you could identify with some of that? See, at, at that place, there's a fork in the road when you get there. And many of us, I think, very subtly begin to turn from the grace we have been given and depend on our own ability to obey. And you say, well, Jeff, I can't obey. That's my whole point. I'm, I'm struggling with obedience. Why would I depend on my own, my own ability to obey? And that's the irony of the whole thing. You see, you realize that your own ability to do the right thing is limited, but you begin to define your relationship with God by your ability to keep it going instead of His ability to keep it going. We we base it on what we can do instead of on what He has done. And it's what we saw back in chapter 6 where it says they crucify in themselves Jesus all over again. When we take on the guilt and shame of our failure, and I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't feel remorse and repentance for our sins, but I'm saying if you're living there and, and just constantly wallowing in your guilt and your shame for things that you do, then you know what you're doing is you're depending upon your ability to keep the covenant instead of accepting what Jesus has done for you. And that, that's a place where there's no hope. That's that's what I think he means by deliberately continuing to sin after you have received the knowledge of the truth. If you realize that Jesus died once for all for you, and then you come back and you spend all this time wallowing in guilt and condemnation, then then, then you've forgotten the truth. You see, the warning is against taking responsibility for what Jesus has said is His responsibility. So what would it look like then if we were living as if Jesus really was greater? What would it look like? I mean, we all know that Jesus is greater, right? If I, put a, if I had a pop quiz today and I had a, is Jesus greater than everything else? Check yes or check no. You would probably all pass that test. Yes, he is greater. We know it here. But, but how come we don't often live that way? Why, why is it that we go back to that condemnation of our own sin and trying to earn it our own way? Well, the writer of Hebrews says that's foolish. And so I, here's, here's three things as I, as I close to how to live it out. Number one, and this, these are easier said than done, but they are attainable. In difficulty, we need to default to grace. You know, you know what a default setting is? In your computer or your phone or your tablet, you can set default settings, and that means when you open the computer, it goes there. It doesn't have to ask you, what picture do you want in your background? It's, it's by default that's always there. And it's something that happens without... I, on my, for example, I've got some... That's, if, when I open my computer, that's who I see all the time, some of my favorite people. Right? When I open my phone, that's my default picture. Isn't she pretty? <laughs> right. And this is on my iPad. <coughs> I like that little kid, Carter. I set those pictures to be on my screen so that I don't have to think. I just open it up and there it is. and It makes me smile. All three of those make me smile every time I see them. They're my default setting. I don't have to, every time I open up my my iPad, think, how am I going to find that picture of Carter? It's always there. And I think what what we need to do is in difficulty, we need to start defaulting to grace. In our own failures, (laughs) when we blow it, To default to the grace of God. Now you may say, Jeff, you're going to take advantage of that if that's what you... Try it. Just try it. In the failures of others, when someone else is is unkind to us, when someone else takes advantage of us, to default to grace toward them instead of condemnation toward them. Now that's way easier said than done, but there are things we can practice. That's what spiritual disciplines are about, to help us learn to live by grace as a default setting. And to do that, we also have to let go of self-sufficiency. One of the reasons we don't default to grace is that we try to carry everything on our own. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear it very clearly. The cross has paid in full for every sin you have committed, every sin that you will ever commit. And, and oftentimes, our regret over sin, I, like I say, you're going to feel it when you, when you fall. You're going to feel regret over sin. But if you live there, if you live there, it's a, it's a sign that, that we're, we're taking responsibility on ourselves that Jesus has taken. And you may say, as I've said, doesn't this lead to taking advantage of grace? I don't think it does. I, I, I really... It's it's an unproven theory, but my theory is when you really get the grace of God, sin becomes less and less and less appealing. When you know that despite your failure, God loves you, then there's a desire in you not to do that anymore. And I just think that's that's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. We tend to think that if we just feel guilty enough, we'll stop doing that. How's that working for you? How many of you feel like guilt has gotten you over this hump in your spiritual life? Uh, And that's why I think we hide things because guilt just overwhelms us. We end up in this cycle. But if we can say to God, here it is, I'm sorry. I don't want to be this way. And he says, I paid for that. And we receive that. All of a sudden that, what we did is less appealing. It, it, It has less of a hold on us. And you know, even if, overemphasizing grace encourages people to take advantage of it i can't help but see that the bible tends to overemphasize grace in hebrews 10:14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being saved that's what he says about you if you're a believer if you've accepted the jesus the forgiveness of jesus he has perfected you for all time despite your failures <laughs> we didn't read this verse today, but, but back in chapter 9, 27 and 28, and just as it appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, we've heard that one, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. How many of you as kids heard about the movie that Jesus was going to show in heaven that t- talked about all your sins? Man, I was terrified of that movie. Why didn't somebody say, when he comes again, it's not to deal with sin? He did that on the cross. He's coming to save those of you who are eagerly waiting for him. Stop wallowing in fear and guilt and embrace the grace of God. You might be amazed how that makes sin so repulsive to you. We need to default to grace in times of difficulty. We need to let go of self-sufficiency and we need to cling to confidence and hope. Verse 23 of chapter 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess because he who promises faithful. In 1035, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. What do we do when we fail? When you sin, when you blow it, when you blew it this morning, maybe when you blow it this afternoon, what is your default? What are you going to hold on to? I want you to hold on and cling to the confidence that what Jesus has done is greater than anything you could ever do. And it is enough. You know, people, more and more, I'm seeing tattoos and shirts and necklaces and rings. I am enough. And it's great. But I, I, the reality is I'm not enough. But Jesus is enough. Way more than I could ever need. And so it's okay for me not to be enough because he's enough. And, and clinging to that confidence and hope that despite my failure and my weakness, he is coming again and he is transforming me, that he has committed himself to making me like him. That's a powerful idea. Jake, last week or week before, we have this hope, Hebrews 6.19, as an anchor for the soul. Firm and secure. And I, this, this 8, 9, and 10 is, is very simple to boil down into one sentence or two sentences. And you say, why didn't you do that 35 minutes ago, Jeff? If your anchor for your soul is your ability to get things right, you are hooped. You don't have an anchor. If your anchor for your soul is the fact that Jesus once for all paid for your sin, then you can rest. You can rest even when you blow it. You can receive the grace of God. You can share it with other people and it will transform your life. It's it's, it's hope that leads to rest and peace and transformation. It's what this table is actually all about. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for this hope that is an anchor for our soul. The fact that you are greater than anything. And Our enemy, the devil, is so tricky. And he gets us wrapped up in what we have done and distracts us from what you have done. And I pray, God, just as it says in in Corinthians, Corinthians, that as we look on your glory, we are transformed into your likeness. I pray that would be what drives our life. When we fail, that we could run to you, that we could receive your grace when others hurt us or or go against us, that we could offer your grace to them just the way you've offered it to us. And God, that that would be a transforming factor in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had this verse in my head that I wanted to share with you, and I quickly Googled it on my iPad. And, and guess what it is? Romans 8.2. It's right after Romans 8.1. Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because through Christ Jesus, The law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And if nothing else, I hope you can go today a little more free, realizing that the cross was enough for your sin. Receive that grace and share it with the world around you. That's my prayer for you. Amen.